Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my honor to be in dialogue with Lord Leslie Turnberg. He was a professor of medicine and president of the Royal College of Physicians in England. We are here today to discuss his newly published book, Mandate, The Palestine Crucible, 1919-1939, to published in London by Valentine Mitchell, 2021. Leslie, I can hardly thank you enough for your kindness and for your availability. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed this book and catalyzed the writer you would become as an adult? I was born in Salford, near Manchester in England, uh, 1934, long time ago, uh, in a family where my father was born in Romania, my mother were Austrian and Polish origin, and I was the first member of my family, my the family to go into university at and we were a fairly poor but not destitute family. And I grew up in Manchester, went to university in Manchester, and qualified as a doctor in 1992, uh, 1957, and I worked and trained in Manchester, London, and I started on a research career while I was in America in 1967. And during that time, I carried out quite a lot of research. And when I came back, I was up with a chair in medicine, a professor of medicine in Manchester, which brought American to do my research, my teaching, and my clinical work. And so, gastroenterology. By then, and I carried on in university for several years until I became dean at the medical school in the 1980s. I did for years, and then at the end of that, I was elected to become president of the Royal College of Physicians in London in 1992. I continued to do five years living in London then in the local positions in Regent Park. Well, that was my medical background. I married uh, my Israeli wife in 1968 while in America, Dallas, Texas. And we then got married again when we went back from Manchester. And uh, we had two children, uh, Daniel and Ellen. Daniel, our son, was also born a doctor, but was sadly killed in an airplane class, flighting our lives in uh, 2007. And that made an enormous difference to our lives, losing our precious son. Our daughter went to live in Israel, which had two kids, four kids, sorry. Uh, of whom two, one married and one about to be married. So that's my background. My interest in Israel and leading up to the publication of my first book on Israel, which was uh, the Yonwood Balkan Declaration, 
2017. Uh, the reason I became interested in this well uh, was because of family connections, obviously, but also because when I came into the House of Lords, which I was brought, I was brought into the House of Lords in the year 2000 by Tony Blair. Uh, and the reason he brought me in was because I'd written a report for the government on the health service in London and suggested ways in which health services may be improved. And he liked the report and asked if I would come into the House of Lords to talk about health matters. When I got into the House of Lords, I realized there was a fair deal of antipathy towards Israel. And so it felt to me to be want to uh, try to defend Israel, even though some of the elections in Israel, it's not terribly defensible. But nevertheless, I was in the position of having saying a good word about Israel, which I've done ever since. Um, but I realized that coming up to the centenary of the Balfour Declaration in 2017, I would uh, find quite a lot of uh, antipathetic comments about whether Balfour did a good thing or a bad thing in creating what he's helping create. State of Israel. So I felt I ought to write a bit of a history of Israel from the Balfour Declaration, which is what I did and published the book, which was basically the history of Israel from its inception right to 2017. And that came out in that war. That really was me about the history of Israel. So I did a lot of research came out in 2017, and subsequently I realized this was saying yeah, early superficial history. Well, I needed to get into more debt, and that prompted me to study the mandate period between the wars, between 1917 and 1939, 1919 and 1949. Those were very critical years for the state of Israel and its formation. And so that's the reason behind me writing this book about which we develop some interest. What message do you hope to convey to readers of this book? Well, I want to try to indicate that what a miracle it was that the state of Israel emerged at the what that happened during those 20 years. 1919 and 1949. The Balfour Declaration in 1917 was not a treaty. It was not a promise. It was not an act of parliament. It was simply the government looking with favor on the idea of a new home and Palestine. That's all it was, looking with favor. And so to go from that to the mandate for Palestine, which in turn allowed the Jews enter Palestine, the Mythic Belt Bar, uh, was an enormous step. And to get that message across, that uh, there was a people that's given across Europe, mainly in various states of poverty and persecution, uh, allowed and encouraged to enter Palestine at a time 
when the Arabs, the Palestinian Arabs in particular, perhaps only the Palestinian Arabs at that time, were very much against them coming. And the Jews were outnumbered 10 to 1 in the Arabs at the time. And the government of the day in during the 1920s were vacillating, were uncertain, unclear about whether really this was a good thing. They would be pressed by the Arabs to revoke the thought of that Walton. Also uh, antagonism to the Greens as the on then. And at various times there were riots. Various times, the limitations put on the numbers of immigrants coming into Palestine at the time. And the miracle is that despite all those things, the Jews were able to establish the basis of what we call the state of Israel in 1948. Those 20 years were absolutely critical. It turns out that they would have been able to do it on their own. They had been left for their own resources without the British taking on the mandate for Palestine. It would have been extremely difficult for them to survive against the onslaught of huge numbers of Arabs who didn't want them there at all, didn't want to get them their land, didn't want them to immigrate. Oh, and they were very antipathetic to Jews at the time, and they saw a takeover of their land by this foreign body. So the message I want to get across is how vitally important the mandate period was during the period of the Human War for allowing the Jews to begin to establish themselves. But by the end of that period, 1939, there were about 300,000 Jews against all of the Arabs. Well, that's the message. What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance? Well, there are several arguments. Um, there's been a lot of debate about why Balfour and the British government brought up the idea of allowing the Jews uh, to have some encouragement to set up their own Palestine. This was 1917, the war was on, um, and the Lord George was the Prime Minister, and Arthur Balfour was the, uh, had been, had been Prime Minister, but was in the war cabinet. He became interested because Time Weitzman had met him and had seemed to convince him that the Jews had a case. Herzl had already suggested which land in Palestine, and Weitzman was a leading Zionist in England at the time, he was in Manchester, where I was. And he persuaded Balfour, this was a good point. Balfour was the chief cabinet, the government cabinet. And they accepted it for several reasons. One, Stein Weitzman was an ally who developed a method of producing acetone, which was necessary for production of explosives during the Forceful War. And it developed a method for producing large amounts of acetone. So they wanted to reward Weitzman for doing that. But perhaps more importantly, they wanted to convince the American Jews 
But the slave American president come into the war on the side of the Allies. So that was a very useful Balfour was more than that. He actually was very clear that the Jews had been badly treated by Christianity in Europe for many wars. And he said as much. He said that we really do, we are guilty of the terrible tabloids for too long. This is necessary. So he was convinced for ethical, moral, and the Barker Declaration came out. There were two other meetings going on at the same time that uh, people talk about. One was the Sykes-Picot agreement, which had been reached in 1916 between the French and the Brits, and this was an agreement in secret. Barker Declaration, incidentally, was uh, public, was in a letter to Rothschild, it was public widely. It was supported by the French, the Italians, even the Pope supported it, and eventually the Americans supported it too. So it had wide outright support. Max Pico was secret. Max Pico was between the French and the Brits uh, in 1916 to divide up the Middle East if and when the Allies won the First World War. They believed they would, and they would be able to take over the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans and divide it up between the French and the Brits. That was one of the other agreement was even more secret. This was a secret agreement between Henry McMahon, in his high commissioner, and King Hussein of Egypt, was Arabia. This agreement was to try to get the Arabs in Arabia to go against the uh, Ottomans, against the Turks, on whose empire this Middle East was run, to go up to revolt against them uh, on behalf of the Allies, the Brits. Hussein wasn't a very nice man. He murdered all the Poles. And he uh, was already in trouble by the Turks. The Turks wanted to oust him. So he was keen to work with the Allies. Uh, and there was a correspondence between Mahan and Hussein promising that if the war was won by the Allies and the Ottomans were ousted from the Middle East, he would then out the whole of the Middle East, from right in the north, including Syria, right down to towards Egypt, not including Arabia, Mesopotamia, Palestine, Iraq, and Jordan, all that would be his. That's what Hussein thought he'd been promised. It's not exactly what McMahon thought he promised. There was a lot of vaccination, a lot of underhand activity going on. And that correspondence was never published because it had been Hussein would have been killed by the Turks, but it was never published. And there were a lot of misunderstandings about it. Those were the three events that were going on uh, before the war ended. Alpha, McMahon, Hussein, Spangles, and Sight, 
Uh, of those, only about the declaration of the public platform, and it's the only one that survived because when the war was won, as it was in 1917, General Allenby was all owned, all owned by Palestine and, and taken to Jerusalem in 1917. By then, it was clear that the, uh, the same McMahon correspondence was not going to hold any water uh, because the French and the Brits had already decided to divide up Syria in the north of the French and Mesopotamia in the south of the So that was the position at the end of the First World War. I can stop there for a moment what's the next question. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, I'd like them to get from the point when the end of the First World War, 1919, was the peace conference in Versailles. And at that moment, problems of the Jews were degraded or were not involved because at that time they had to powers that be, France, Italy, France, and America now, that to sort out the after effects of the war. Economies of all those countries destroyed, or were going to go into a recession in the 1920s and 30s, general strikes. Uh, they had to make, try and make Germany repay for the damage that they had done in starting the war. And these conflicts was trying to sort everything out. Amongst all the various things they were trying to do, um, was the business of what should happen to the Ottoman Empire, what would happen to the Middle East. And therein lay the problem because uh, Sykes and Peter, Lloyd George and Clemens, so had already decided they wanted to divide up countries to become colonies of uh, Britain and France. But colonies were going out of fashion. Britain's empire was deteriorating where the Indian continent was in the others struggling to get out from under the British rule and the days of empire were gone. And uh, the American president uh, came in and said in his 14-fold plan that uh, this is Woodrow Wilson. He said that uh, countries, new countries, old countries, have to be self-sufficient. They can no longer be run as colonies, they have to be self-determined. And uh, the idea of mandates came up. Mandates were not colonies. They were run by countries who know, knew how to run countries until those countries were capable of looking after themselves. So there were planetary arrangements set up until the individual countries could manage their own affairs modern society as it was. And that's what happened with, for example, with uh, Syria, it happened with Iraq, it happened with France Gordon, it didn't happen with Palestine, because Palestine mandate had been promised. That promise had been confirmed in San Remo, 1922. 
uh, and then confirmed by the League of Nations in 1923. The League of Nations looked at the promise of a mandate for Palestine and approved it with 51 out of 51 members approving. It was held absolutely by the League of Nations that the mandate of Palestine should include a homeland for the Jews um, in return of the so those were the background. The Van Remo conference, despite the French not wanting, the French were dead against it, but the Brits won the day. Um, and the League of Nations conference. So it then went into international law. And although Britain struggled during the next 20, 30 years, particularly in the last 30 years, until 1949, struggled with problem of how to separate the warring parties between the Arabs and the Jews, lots of riots, lots of killing going on, how to, to separate these warring parties at a time when they had their own problems, Britain uh, had its own problems, and, uh, but it was stuck with it. It was stuck with it because they take non-responsibilities that they couldn't get. They'd agreed with the League of Nations, and they couldn't use it without considerable loss of face. So they stuck with it, and they were able to allow the development within Palestine during the whole of that period of the Jews, despite any reluctance or lots of debates in Parliament in Britain trying to revoke the and certainly by 1922, all the League of Nations in Portugal, there was a uh, very strong debate saying we really shouldn't be approving this uh, development of Palestine. We shouldn't be stopping this now. But in fact, it went through and all that the mandate, it went through the League of Nations. And the mandate consisted right until Britain got rid of it in 1948, when they handed it over, 1947, they handed it over to the United States. So those 20 years between the wars were very critical because Britain, in under the High Commissioner, was Speaker Edward Samuel, and later other High Commissioners, had to tell the line. They had to try to keep the Arabs or the Jews in line one way or another, very reluctantly, as you said. Sometimes they were on the verge of jettisoning the old idea and handing it over to America. America wouldn't have done anything with it. They were stuck with it. On page 204, you write as follows. The major advantage that the Jews had over the Arabs was the friends they continued to have in high places, particularly in Britain. They included Lord Balfour, Lord Snell, Josiah Wedgwood, Ormsby Gore, and most significantly David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill, whom they had been nurturing for years, plus several Jewish members of the government, including Herbert Samuel and Rufus Isaacs, later Lord Reading. Yet despite the fact that most of them were out of office for much of the 1930s, it is remarkable that they were able to continue to espouse support for the Zionists. The Arabs were very late trying to gain allies in the British Parliament. 
nor did they have the influential diaspora that the Jews had available. In America after the war, there was a growing pro-Zionist lobby among wealthy Jews who were able to fund much of the development of the Jews in Palestine. Many were in high positions in business, banking, and the law, and tried hard, not always successfully, to influence senior politicians. The power of the quote-unquote Jewish lobby there was always somewhat exaggerated. Then there was the enthusiastic idealism of young, highly intelligent Jews imbued with European know-how who were able, who were eager to make a new life. Drive, initiative, and knowledge gave them the tools to make a difference in an inhospitable and threatening environment. The quote-unquote new Jew was a strapping, self-reliant, no-nonsense go-getter who was no one's victim. Little wonder that the Warfelachin, living in a previous century without means or education, could not compete and became increasingly resentful as they watched the takeover of their country. Their masters in the small number of notable families had been well-off and well-educated but did nothing to share that well-being with the Felachin in the fields who had been suppressed for centuries under the Ottoman rule. Under the mandate and with friends in high places in Britain and America, the odds had moved in favor of the Jews and against the Arab position. Despite their numerical superiority, the Palestinian Arabs were losing the battle against the influx of eager immigrants armed with modern European technology, financially supported from abroad, and protected by the British. Can you elaborate on this passage for us? What does it reveal about the period that you examine in this book? In what ways does it represent in a microcosm themes that are developed throughout your book? Yeah, I think that, well, I, obviously I agree with everything that said, uh, and that you relate to, well, well that it was true that the Jews had considerable advantages despite their numerical inferiority. And they did have friends in high places. It didn't help them in the end. Uh, it didn't help them right up the end. 1936, there was general strikes and riots amongst the Arabs. And at that time, there were such unrest. And in Britain, there was old clear from the Second World War. Was about to start on The last thing they needed was revolts and riots and killing. They sent in the army. They did But they were clear that this situation couldn't continue. And they decided to have well, a number of reports, the field report, commission. Woodhead Commission looked at how they could sort out this difficulty between the And Peel came up with the, for the first time an official partition plan to divide the Jewish sector from the Arab sector. The Jews accepted it, the Arabs didn't. Uh, it was clear that it was a much a terribly good proposal because of the look at the map that they produced. It involved three sections. Narrow, Jewish section was very small and very narrow, and Arab section equally distorted. And the middle section was international around Jerusalem 
and the long sections. So it was a very peculiar division. So the government decided to send in Woodhead to produce another four competition. He produced three plans for two of which members of his own war disagreed with. And again, potential was off the table. By this time, 1939, the government was fearful that we were going to have a second world war. They wanted to be shot at the whole thing. So they held a conference in London and they, they returned, despite the fact that until then, the Arabs had done everything not to collaborate or cooperate. It means all that they were fighting both the Jews and the Brits. And the Brits were getting fed up with them, but they realized they were all good position. They knew that coming up was the Second World War. They would lead a unborn Muslim population to join them in the fight against the Axis powers against them. And India laid, laid heavily on their mind. So they held a conference in, in London, which they invited Jews with representatives and the Arab representatives. Uh, neither the Jews nor the Arabs met together. They had two separate meetings with McDonald as the foreign secretary, as the colonial secretary there, leading the discussions. In the end, they said, look, you've got to agree to this partition. If you don't agree to it, we are going to uh, hand over the mandate to you, the population of Palestine, and the majority rule will obtain in five to ten years' time when they will decide, the majority rule will decide on immigration and land purchase. The Jews immediately knew this was fatal to them because they were grossly outnumbered still, two to one, by the Arabs. And if the Arabs then became government, they would not be able to continue in, at the end of five to ten years. And that's how the, the Arabs, with all their rights, with all their uh, strikes, had won the day. And despite the fact that the Brits were fed up with them, and despite the fact that the Jews had tried, tried to come up with some old things, uh, and were willing to work with partition plans and so on. The Arabs were, re were rewarded for their aggressive tactics. And that really destroyed the Jews for a while. Ben Glorian at the time, the beginning of the Second World War, uh, spoke about, uh, we will fight the war as if there is no white paper. The white paper described as Walton. And we'll fight the white paper as if there's no law. law. It was a terrible time, 1939, because that was when the door to immigration was shut very tight from Europe, where the Jews were being persecuted, went out to concentration camps, and eventually to extermination camps later on. And that, that was the end of the Holocaust. So during the war, uh, Jewish immigration into Palestine was very limited by the white paper. wasn't absolutely excluded, but the numbers were limited. And uh, so the, the end of the 1939 
for a reversal of fortune towards the Arabs, largely as a result of the fact that the Brits couldn't afford to keep running a divided country in that way. They wanted to keep the Arabs and the Muslims from in the particular one board. Uh, and uh, so they gave in to Arab bands to be able to run their own affairs. I have to say that that villainous uh, Grand Mufti, Al Bulsaini, wasn't satisfied and he demanded more. However, he's no longer in office. So, the end of the 1930s saw a, a reversal of fortune. Until then, uh, of course, there were many episodes you knew about riots uh, and killing and so on, and all which Bob Bannock wanted. Speaking of Hajj Amin al-Husseini, can you elaborate on the insights your book provides regarding his role in the events that played out during the interwar years? Can you comment on his role in the 1929 riots? Can you comment on his involvement in murders of Arab opponents and of British officials? Can you comment on the circumstances regarding his release from prison? Can you comment on his presidency of the World Islamic Congress? What can listeners and readers learn from you about Haj Amin al-Husseini? He was um, a young man in his twenties. Was quite charismatic. He wanted to be religious and hadn't prayed and found in at all. But he spoke very well, and and in nineteen twenty, he was very active in raising the voice of Palestinian Arabs against the Egyptians, and he incited the riots which occurred in nineteen twenty, and again in forty one. He was. During that time, 1920, the first riot, he was caught and was going to be imprisoned by Alan, the military commander of the town, but he escaped and went off to the very early Um 1921, we came back and Herbert Samuel Bethel, by then, they had the Mushmah, and we gave them an amnesty to get the other. And he then decided, because Samuel was Jewish, he was very suspicious, well, suspected by the Arabs of being Jewish and therefore Zionist and therefore Herbert Samuel leant over backwards to try and demonstrate that he was their man and not biased. And he appointed Husseini as the Mahdi of Jerusalem. Despite the fact that there were others more suited to that, he became the Grand Mufti, or over other Mufti's. And he then went on to incite all sorts of other uprisings, one in 1921, uh, and then a, one in 1929. Um, he was clearly a Palestinian nationalist and was almost certainly severe anti-Semitism, his anti-Semitism certainly came out much later, but 
he was delegates that he was taking over. He, um, during the 1930s, was gradually realized as being by the Brits as being yeah, antipathetic to the mandate. And so they expelled him, he ran away. He finished up in Germany in the 1940s and became a supporter of Hitler. And he used to uh, raise a lot of propaganda against the Jews uh, and that things like wherever the Jews kill them. And his propaganda was really um, And he was cleared a very strong Palestinian nationalist and anti Seymour. He was out of uh, the way for a long time. Finished up in German war, I'll say, then later in France, incidentally, there were plots for having killed or by various bonds, but uh, he survived. It's interesting that although he was, I suppose, in a way, the father of Palestinian nationalism, the Palestinian Authority, the Arafat, never referred to him. He was really out of political. He was a very nasty man. He uh, pulled up his opponents. To metal, there is a lot of riots, even though we are not guilty by some of the commitments that Britain set out. He was undoubtedly responsible for much of what taken against the Jews. So, very nasty man. In what way does your book shed new light on the McMahon Hussein understandings? On the McMahon Hussein understandings? Yeah. Well, they were. I described that a series of letters between uh, Henry McMahon, the High Commission in Egypt, and on behalf of the British government, promising uh, promising and saying that he would lead the whole of war in the East if Britain won the war and relieve the East of the Ottoman. And he would then be allowed to run the whole of the East. Uh, this was a secret agreement, and it wasn't really an agreement because it was hedged around with all sorts of books and pieces. And included in the advisals was that this agreement to give him the leadership and the early that needs was to exclude Palestine, Palestinians. The question really arose as to where was Palestine, as it had been up till 19. Part of the Syrian province of the Ottoman Empire. It didn't have a separate boundary. And there was a lot of debate during the 1920s and 30s about where the boundaries of Palestine actually existed. Um, Churchill thought it was the line between that uh, Sheva and Ramadan on the north. Uh, but it, it, it it wasn't that line because no one quite knew where the where these places were at that time. But nevertheless, uh, Palestine was explored. And as far as Hussein was concerned, King Hussein was concerned, and his son, he had three sons, Ali, brother, and Faisal. And uh, none of them felt much feeling of Palestinian elves. They thought these were very backward people, which they were mainly apart from the notable families who were very much involved in terms of um, 
general Arab population just wanted to get on with their lives. They regarded themselves mostly as Muslim. They didn't regard themselves as Palestinian. They were illiterate. They were kept out of education. And they were poor. And so they regarded them as unnecessary. They didn't regard them as being important to keep on in their own empire. But the correspondence seemed to promise that this would happen. Of course, it never could have happened because the Syrians, for example, didn't want Hussein, Hussein to be uh, on top of them. They didn't like him. Uh, and certainly not people in the rest of Mesopotamia. So, anyway, he was kicked out even of his own country, Hejaz, by King Saud when he came to Saudi Arabia in the 1920s. So, we didn't have access to his own country. But that correspondence, stuck in the throats of the Arabs ever since because they believed that Britain reneged on that promise of saying speaking from the whole of the Middle East. They couldn't have done it because the French had already promised to help Syria and Britain had already thought that they would help Mesopotamia. Incidentally, in 1921, Churchill went across that arrow and set up two new countries, Jordan and Iraq. And it very, very formed in 1941, and the Mesopotamia was divided up in those days. Anyway, that's the, the Mahan saga, Mahan Hussein saga. It was, a, it, was a, it was a sad reflection of British double, double thinking. They gained one and one the other. And it was a obfuscation on a large scale. They'd already promised the French to help the site speak our arrangements. Does that help you? Thank you. That was a very generous response. I appreciate it. What was the Peel Commission report? Can you describe its ramifications and its recommendations? Well, the Peel, Peel Commission report, 1938, came at the end of a period of riots and violence and strikes, and the Arabs were all over the place. And the Jews were defending themselves very effectively and the Brits brought in. So it was a period of great unrest. And Britain was fearful that 1938 was also they sent Ealing to look at what could be done. We came up with the idea of partition, dividing Palestine into two countries, a Jewish and an Arab Muslim part. And he came up with a plan which I described earlier, a very which involved Jews in the north, Arabs in the south, and a peace in between, which was under international rule, including Jerusalem, and a long sliver of land to the coast. And it divided the north from the south, so that anyone traveling across a good part in the south as well had to go between that land, so to speak, to get the It was a very complicated thing, and it would have involved moving a lot of Arabs from one, the Jewish part, and a lot of Jews from the Arab part. It was really not a very good partition plan. Uh, and it, it brought back to the British government. They looked at it and thought, well, this is okay, but it's going to cost us far too much money. So they sent Woodhead out to do another plan to see if he could do better. And the Woodhead Commission came in 1938-39 uh, and uh, came up with three plans 
in which they divided the country in different ways. Uh, the panel that came, there were three of them, two of the members said they didn't like two of the facts. So the points were rejected, and the one that was finally accepted was regarded as far too expensive. So it died the death. Uh, but it, th these were the first efforts of partition. Uh, and um, the Jews accepted them. The Arabs said no. Uh, the Jews accepted them, even though it gave the Jews a minute control. Some said it was the size of Norfolk when it was debated on the House of Commons and the House of Law. It was a very small area. Uh, so it wasn't entirely satisfactory, but it did give them the first time a Jewish state, and that was without a Jewish state. So it hadn't had a Jewish state before that. It had a Jewish mandate and a mandate and a transfer, never a state. So saying a state was a big move and was one of the reasons why Hussaini objected to it. Although it was very, you know, it was interesting. It was on the basis of partition that the United Nations came up with a partition plan in 947, which again, the incipient state of Israel, 1948, accepted, but the Arab states didn't. And all that resulted in 1948, troops lines, armistice lines, and took over the whole of the bank, and Israel developed the West. So that was um, partition. You recall partition. What new insights does your book reveal regarding Nahum Sokolov? Well, Sokolov is an unsung era of mine, at least, and of many others. So the Sokolov screen team, and I've the made the other Sokolovs. He's not very widely known. He was a colleague, friend at Fine White's and Walt in the years leading up to the Balfour Declaration and thereafter. And he was there, uh, Weitzman's deputy in Palestine, uh, uh, various times. He was uh, Russian, uh, but spoke, I think, 10 languages, a very literate man, who had written a book on the history of Zionism, a book on Dinoza, a highly intellectual man who was responsible, I think, for gaining the approval of the French foreign minister and the French government to Balfour's declaration, 1917, before it was produced and before it was announced, he went to France and got the French to agree. He was a great communicator. He then went to Italy. We got the Italian government to agree. And he even spoke to the Pope. Popes over the years have not been entirely friendly to the Jews. He convinced that particular Pope that uh, they shouldn't be supporting what they deemed in their aspirations to have a state, make a state in Palestine. And he agreed. Then came back. And was heavily involved with White Snow in San Remo and the Olson's mandate in Geneva. And he was behind the scenes a lot of the time, producing a lot of the ideas and intellectual philosophy of the state and of band. 
and remarkable man. There are very little written about him. There was son, I think, of Walter He lived for a while in London, very near where I live now. And there is a blue plaque on the wall that we need to demonstrate. Yeah, in London. Uh, but he deserves more. Uh, I thought of writing a book about him, but all the records and most of his stuff are in the and I don't have a boss. I don't mean for that I could dig it all out. So, uh, but he is a man that deserves a full biography. Can you describe the origins and repercussions of the Nebi Musa riots of April, April 1920? Yeah, this was uh, this was before before. I think it was before uh, the summer before the Ike Mosque. But there were actually two riots. One, um, there was a, a rumor going around that these were intent on taking over the Temple Mount, the Allies of Mosque, from the Arab. And the, well, well, some rumor so teams killing Arabs in Yatta. Uh, the word communist, yeah, or who were having a fight, not a clean fight, but a mystical fight, more non-communist Jews. But this was completed into the Jews in Jaffa killing Arabs. And this was the propaganda that uh, Hussaini, amongst others, was propagating in the Al-Aqsa Mosque in 1920. And the Jews, the Arabs became incensed and ran out in the streets and started a whole host of War actions against the Jews. And then there was an event when Jewish lads were playing football, and a football went into the garden of an Arab, and the Arab got shot, killed, and the Jews were incensed. So there was, a, again, a number of certain uh, reasons why the Arabs and the Jews started fighting each other. And there were a lot of killings going on in, in and around Jerusalem, in Hebron, and in other cities around Palestine until, of course, uh, it flagged. Uh, and one of the things that happened was that Ronald Stores, who was then the administrator of the Muslim, Department of under Ernest Samuel, was at a celebration of the Musa events. And he um, uh, didn't react quickly enough to suppress the riot. And he was forever ostracized by the Jews for having failed to prevent the riot or the fault uh, immediately after that. I think he was ostracized unfairly because while Storz was, in fact, a very important man, he became very friendly with the Jews and set up chess conferences, uh, chess competitions, uh, which he played and he played. He set up music concerts which were mainly ruled up until entirely ended. He worked closely at the Jews to uh, set up clubs. He was very involved in ensuring that the past that Jerusalem was protected from devastation by developers and ensured that the city was only built with Jerusalem stone. And any old buildings could only be knocked down with full permission. 
there is a lot of enforcement, but this business of failing to react to those particular riots stuck with me for the rest of his time in Palestine. So that's the background to hold. Tell us about some of the subsequent acts of violence, the Western Wall riots of 1929, the disturbances of 1936, and the Arab uprising between 1936 and 39. Yeah, I've spoken a little about the 36 to 39 riots, uh, against the Brits as well as against the Jews. The 1929 was a significant, very significant, when uh, separated the 1920s up to mountain when after the initial riots, things were beginning to settle down for other problems, but in that period, it was a difficult period. 1929 was the turning point, and it up among the 1930s, where I didn't and then that more and and it arose ostensibly because uh, the Western Wall, where the Jews had long prayed uh, during the bat, not running and and so on, uh, a narrow area in front of the Western Wall, surrounded by hovels of Palestinian Arabs uh, and right adjacent to the wall. And the duels on Yom Kippur put out the beating about a division, a technical division between the men and women, and brought chairs in and the days on which they put the rebels. And the Arabs objected, saying, Look, they're taking over, they're taking over the whole area and threatening to take over the Western Wall, and that they're more up. They completed what was happening. and. The Brits had to agree to take down both these chairs and the divided. They failed to do it. They only did it related yet. And um, the Brits had to come in and remove it against the opposition of the Jews who were praying at the time in a young people. Well, that set the scene. And the Jews in Dapa heard about it and decided to walk through object to this. The Arabs immediately, immediately reacted and set off a series of devastating uh, of which were killed in Jerusalem, old killed there, and the young in Hebron, their large numbers in Safed. Or where seminary involved ready to and a lot of the occupants were killed, the buildings were destroyed, and in Japan. So the whole thing or it. The Jews tried to defend themselves. People like Kapitinsky and what's his name? Man who set up the electrification in Israel. Yes, Rutenberg. Uh, did their best to try and protect them. But it wasn't enough. 
and then the one and eventually died down as the Brits eventually brought in their army. A lot of Palestinians were killed, largely by the British army and the police. Uh, but it left an indelible mark on the Jews. And particularly the report that came out afterwards, what's the report? The report said, oh yes, the Arabs are to blame. But the reason they're to blame is because they don't like the idea of Jews coming in and taking over. So the whole cause of this uprising was nothing to do with the religious takeover by the Jews of the Roman Barak and the Alaks the Mosque. It's all to do with as portrayed to them by the Arabs. It's all to do with the fact that the genes were coming in and taking over their land. And uh, sure it more said we really got to do something about stopping this takeover. We've got to stop the genes immigrating. We've got to stop the sale of money. And that was the big turning point was another reporter, Hope Simpson report, pointed out there was nowhere near enough land for the Jews to take. It was needed by the Palestinian Arabs. Mistaken, very badly designed, but nevertheless something which the government all day thought they needed to take note of. And uh, it was uh, taken up in a white paper, which uh, and it was produced more or less at the same time, saying we've got to limit the number of humans going, we've got to stop that uh, land being sold to them. Uh, and the whole thing created uproar. It was diverted. It was stopped, fortunately, for the Jews by uh, uh, the Prime Minister of the day, Chamberlain, who said, no, McDonald, McDonald, Labour, Labour Prime Minister. And he felt that uh, we should not do this. And they rescinded their white paper and produced a, a sort of report saying, no, we didn't mean that. We didn't mean what we should start the rules going. We really didn't mean that. We got it wrong. We wanted them to continue on the case of the rules. He sent the letter to Weitzman, who had actually formulated the bottle himself with a man called Henderson. And they, uh, they sent out a, a sending letter. The Arabs called it the Black Letter. Oh, it brought them back to The Jews were very shaken by that. The Jews uh, realized that they were there on sufferance. One bell. And the told by none. And uh, they realized that what well, position was precarious. 1929 was a turning point for the attitude of Britain uh, and the Arabs to If we don't be asking, how can we appreciate and evaluate the life and legacy of Herbert Samuel in new and different ways in light of your book and your research? He was an interesting man. He was your thought. One in Liverpool, but very well, and Hannibal, thank you, And he uh, was awful dog in a dot, but he lost in his religion. Continued to decide. He had produced a paper about the possible uh, state of uh, each state in Palestine. 
1915. He stood down by the then Prime Minister, Aspen. But he obviously had some positive facts, people, interests, well before the Barker Declaration, and he, of course, supported it. He was out of office when he was made out of the he wasn't in the government of Parliament. Um, but he was a very upright uh, man, very moralistic, supportive well, the Zionists, but then actually Dell's fault is equal status, the unbiased ideal when he performed by the Lento backwards to support the Arab at that time. Uh, but he remained uh, very supportive. Interestingly, his cousin was Herbert Montague, who was actually Montague Samuel, uh, also Samuel. He uh, was, was also in the government. I um, changed his name to Samuel uh, Montague, okay. Montague uh, from Samuel. And he, instead of being a dynast, was getting on to the idea of outstanding being today. He said, if we have Palestine as a Jewish state, all the Jews that have made it in the UK have gone anywhere to this desert. And they didn't know why. They don't want that. They dead against it and argued vociferously in cabinet. During the critical time when Balfour produced his declaration in the world cabinet, he was sent out in five stories to India. Where we from Vice-Boston and the outing away all the thought of that As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Um, well, I've been writing another book about Finkler's book and more. I write about Finkler's book and more in this book, that book. When I came across him uh, while I was writing the Monday book, and I thought we just had some biography. So I've written a biography of Finkler. It will come out in August uh, this year, next month. Um, he was a fascinating man. So he's taken up a lot of my time doing research into how he came about. He was born in Ukraine, a mother Russian revolutionary, an assassin who went on to set up the Hellbolt to the Holocaust. He was a very special planet. Um, he set up I must stand there where and Naval. So he was a very good And since then, I've been returning to my forced impulsive health, and I'm writing a book now on the National Health Service, which of course sees the light of day. It will come out next year, won't be all right, but, uh, So those are what's occupying me in my so called retirement. As we end today, I'm signing off by reminding you that I am Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. Today, it has been my blessing to be in dialogue with Lord Leslie Turnberg. He is a professor of medicine and was president of the Royal College of Physicians in England. Today, Leslie and I have been discussing his newly published book, Mandate, the Palestine Crucible, 1919-1939, to published in London 
by Valentine Mitchell, 2021.